0: Well, back in October of last year, a little phrase started appearing on social media, which has since made a massive impact on culture here in the West. It's The hashtag Me Too that has brought attention to the sin of sexual harassment, the sin of sexual violence against women, sins that are far more prevalent in our culture and even in our churches than many of us could have ever imagined. Since the launch of the Me Too movement last fall, we've witnessed a steady stream of high-profile celebrities and politicians, even pastors, exposed before the public eye, brought down from their positions of power and influence, not the least of which was the much-loved Bill Cosby, who was recently convicted of sexual assault and could spend the rest of his life in jail. Powerful celebrities like Cosby, who seemed unimpeachable a few short years ago, are now completely disgraced with lives and careers and legacies that lay in tatters and with only themselves to blame. We've been given in recent months a reminder that sin cannot be hidden forever. And that patterns of unrepentant sin will eventually catch up with us, will lead to our downfall just as the scriptures say Well, this morning as we continue along in our study of Daniel, we're going to witness the account of another very powerful and seemingly invincible man who was suddenly cut down to size and brought into judgment. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you did bring it with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. And once again today, I'm going to read this entire chapter from God's Word. Daniel chapter 5. Hear the Word of the Lord. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is... God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing, to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whomever he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and concubines have drunk wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see or hear or know. The God in whose hand is your breath and in and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from His presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Over the course of this sermon series, I've tried to emphasize the fact that we shouldn't isolate individual stories in the book of Daniel and treat these stories as though they're completely separate from one another, but rather we need to compare these chapters, we need to place these stories alongside of one another so that we can see what the inspired author is teaching us from the book as a whole. Each one of these well-known stories in the early chapters of Daniel contributes something to the overarching theme of the book, which of course is the sovereignty of God over all things, including the kings and the kingdoms of this world. And although the events recorded for us in Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 are separated by about three decades of time and focus on two different kings, I'm convinced that the author has placed these two chapters back to back because he wants us to observe the contrast between King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and King Belshazzar in chapter 5. Two equally wicked men who ended up in two very different places. One of these men was humbled by God and brought to genuine repentance. The other man was humbled by God and brought to utter ruin. Now, as we study this morning, the tragic downfall of King Belshazzar and compare this narrative to what we learned last week, we're going to see that at the heart of Belshazzar's destruction was his forgetfulness of God. Here in these inspired verses, we're confronted with a very proud and forgetful man, a man who forgot about his own mortality, a man who forgot about God's supreme holiness, a man who forgot about God's appointed messenger, and a man who forgot about God's mighty acts in history. Forgetfulness was at the heart of Belshazzar's destruction, and when we forget about these vital truths, truths about ourselves and truths about God, the writing is already on the wall. By the way, that's where that expression came from. It came from this chapter in the book of Daniel. Two narratives about these two kings stand in Scripture as an encouragement, but also as a warning for us, the readers, an encouragement that repentance is indeed possible for those who will remember God's word and submit to God's authority, but at the same time a warning that God's judgment is soon coming upon our world and upon all those who willingly suppress and forget the truth that God is revealed. Confronted here with the tragic downfall of a king, but before we delve too deeply into the details of our text, I want to introduce you to this man named Belshazzar, a new character in the book of Daniel, who has suddenly burst onto the scene. As you know, chapters 1-4 to of this Old Testament book have dealt with Daniel's ministry to a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And as we've seen, Nebuchadnezzar had a very long and successful reign in Babylon. He sat on the throne when the empire of Babylon was at the height of its power and prestige. From a worldly perspective, Nebuchadnezzar was living the dream. But as we saw last week, God humbles men before he saves them. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, the rooting out of his arrogance required extreme measures, even the loss of his sanity for a period of seven years. God dramatically intervened in Nebuchadnezzar's life in order to humble him and then to save him. And as a result of that intervention, the king spent some of the best years of his reign out in the field grazing and living like an animal. But mercifully, at the end of that humiliating process, King Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes towards heaven. He submitted himself to God's authority. He was graciously granted the gift of repentance and faith. Nebuchadnezzar was gloriously converted near the end of his reign, but sadly his legacy of faith did not endure to the next generation as we now discover in chapter 5. From historical records, we know that the last major king to rule in Babylon was a man named Nabonidus and that he was deeply committed to the worship of false gods. And for many years, Nabonidus was thought to have been the last ruler and the only last ruler of Babylon due to the evidence available at the time. That piece of information provoked many critical scholars, many enemies of the Christian faith to ridicule the book of Daniel to conclude that Belshazzar was a fictitious character who didn't really exist in history and therefore that the Bible couldn't be trusted because it wasn't really the word of God. You know, friends, all of that mockery and all of that skepticism was suddenly silenced when a group of archaeologists digging in the ruins of Babylon discovered some clay cylinders inscribed with the name of this very man. About 10 years ago, when Leslie and I were visiting England, we got to see those artifacts with our own eyes. And you can see them too if you ever go to the British Museum. As it turned out, this biblical figure named Belshazzar was also a historical figure in in ancient Babylon. He was the biological son of King Nabonidus, and he was the successor to the throne. And although Nabonidus was technically the king of Babylon until its destruction in 539 BC, he did not live in the capital city, and instead he delegated authority to his son. By the way, that's why in verse 7 of our text, Belshazzar is able to offer the third position in the kingdom because at the time he was the second ruler operating under the authority of his father, the king. Friends, I don't share all of that information to bore you or to overwhelm you with historical details and facts, but I do share it with you because it illustrates that time and time again, the Bible has shown itself to be totally true and totally reliable in everything it affirms. I believe this morning I am not ashamed to declare that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And although my beliefs about the biblical authority do not rest in archaeology or science, I do think it is helpful to be reminded every now and then that the Bible has stood the test of time. That very often the Bible has silenced the mouths of its most vocal opponents. King Belshazzar was a historical figure. Approximately 30 years have passed since the death of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel is now an elderly man. By this point in history, Daniel is is probably in his early to mid-80s. All of the events we read about here in chapter 5 revolve around a banquet or party that was thrown by the king, a banquet that is actually mentioned in the writings of two other ancient historians outside of the Bible. Both of these ancient historians tell us in their writings that a lavish party or banquet was underway on October the 12th of 539 BC when the great city of Babylon was suddenly captured and destroyed by the Persians. And so it was with the throwing of this party that were brought to the first aspect of the king's downfall having to do with his forgetfulness of his own mortality and vulnerability. Like King Nebuchadnezzar in the early days of his reign, Belshazzar was an arrogant ruler who had somehow convinced himself that he was untouchable and invulnerable. He thought he was in control of his own destiny. He lived under the delusion that his kingdom would last forever, even though the Medes and the Persians were already banging at his door. From historical records, we know that at the very moment Belshazzar was getting drunk with all of his friends and nobility, the Persian army was on the move. In fact, at this time, the capital city of Babylon was totally surrounded by enemy troops and more of them were arriving by the day. And yet Belshazzar decides that this is the perfect time to throw a party and get drunk. He shouldn't have needed a supernatural sign to convince him that the end was near. All he needed to do was look over top of the city walls and see the enemy troops surrounding him from every side. But instead of having his priorities straight, instead of getting himself right with the one true God, Belshazzar instead mocks his enemies with a lavish party, unbridled arrogance revealing a king who has forgotten that he is a mere mortal. It's very evident King Belshazzar's confidence is not in God. His confidence is in the city fortifications that Nebuchadnezzar designed, city walls that, that were told were 25 feet thick. And 40 feet high. Just imagine that. It's what the king considered to be an impenetrable fortress. On top of that was the fact that the mighty Euphrates River flowed underneath the walls of the city and directly through the middle of the city, providing all of the residents with a continual supply of fresh water. In his tremendous arrogance and pride, Belshazzar looked at the grandeur of Babylon, he looked at the massive walls of protection, and he decided in his own human wisdom that everything was fine. There's nothing to worry about. And he wasn't aware that at this very moment in history, the Persian army was diverting the flow of the Euphrates River in order to lower the level just enough that they could wade underneath the walls and get in and open the city gates. King Belshazzar had embraced a delusion, friends. He had believed that he was invincible, that he had lots of time to live it up, to enjoy his life, not aware that disaster and destruction was imminent. He's the Old Testament equivalent of the rich fool that we just read about earlier in the service. A man who arrogantly said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? Belshazzar forgot His mortality, His vulnerability. And you know something? Our world today is full of people just like Him. Men and women who live for the pleasure of the moment, enslaved to their own lusts and desires, and not realizing that life here on earth is like a wisp of smoke here today and gone tomorrow. To forget our vulnerability, to forget our mortality is to live a life of folly and to waste the precious time that God has granted to each one of us spending our time and our talent and our treasure on things that will not last beyond the grave. And friends, this tragic example of King Belshazzar ought to remind each and every one of us in this room that life here on earth is short and very uncertain. But that eternity is long and guaranteed. As Christians, we need to evaluate our priorities in the light of God's Word, in the light of the brevity of this life, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trusting that God in His grace and providence will give us everything we need to accomplish our mission. As we make our journey through this life, let us never forget our own finitude, our own mortality. Let us pray with the inspired psalmist that the Lord in His grace would teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The first thing that King Belshazzar forgot was his own mortality and vulnerability. Secondly, we see in verses 2-6 to that the king had also forgotten about God's supreme holiness. The sheer arrogance of this man in throwing the party was bad enough, but even worse is the lack of judgment he demonstrates in taking holy things that belong to the true God and profaning those objects for his own entertainment. We're told in verse 2 of our text that Belshazzar tasted the wine. I think it's safe to assume that he did far more than just sample it. Belshazzar was drinking lots of wine that night, and as the effects of the alcohol began to lower his inhibitions to impair his judgment, he did something that would have been frowned upon even by the standards of his own culture by desecrating the objects of another god. Now, as Christians who believe that there is only one true and living God, we know and we believe that the gods of the nations are worthless idols. But in a polytheistic culture like ancient Babylon that worshiped many different gods and goddesses, there would have been a hesitation to do anything that would make the gods upset. And so very likely the spoils of war that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple years earlier were treated with a degree of reverence and respect since they were, after all, articles of worship. But now this drunken king crosses a line that even Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't cross, profaning the holiness of God, blaspheming His name, mocking Him openly before a thousand assembled guests. King Belshazzar is essentially spitting in God's face, drinking from the golden vessels of the temple, and then worshipping idols that were made from the same finite and created materials. Supreme holiness of the one true God has been forgotten by this king, but little did he know that he was about to be sobered up. For as he and his gifts were in the process of mocking the Lord and profaning his name, the fingers of a human hand suddenly appear in the room and begin to write Aramaic words on the white plaster wall. And as the hand delivers its mysterious message, we read in verse 6 that the king's color changed and that his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Not surprisingly, King Belshazzar is absolutely petrified by the miracle he's witnessing and rightly so as he's about to discover. You know friends, we might be tempted to look at this Old Testament story and wonder how it could ever apply to us as Christians living today. Because after all, the Jewish temple has long since passed away along with all of those gold and silver cups. Belshazzar and Daniel lived in the old covenant when the temple in Jerusalem was the visible token of God's presence on earth. But now we live in the new covenant and scripture tells us that physical buildings are no longer needed. Instead of dwelling in a physical temple, the Bible tells us that God now dwells in a spiritual temple. Living stones that are being built together into a dwelling place for the spirit of God. Both individually as Christians and corporately as the church, God dwells within us and he dwells among us. And in a very real and biblical sense, we the church are the true temple of God, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession, so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God no longer requires holy objects and holy buildings. God has a holy people who have been set apart for His own glory. And you know, friends, when we, the chosen and holy people of God, willingly engage in unholy things, we blaspheme and desecrate the name of our God. It's a truth that we learned in 1 Corinthians 6 last year. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 urges us not to present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's why in Romans chapter 12, Paul says that we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices, Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your logical act of worship. And Christian friends, as members of the New Covenant Church, you and I are the true temple of God. Our bodies are holy vessels to be used for God's glory. And so I ask you in response to a text like this one, whether there is any way in which we have forgotten the holiness of God and whether a sense of forgetfulness has started to show itself in the daily patterns of our lives. I wonder this morning whether our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions reflect the holiness of the God we claim to know and worship or whether they betray a casual indifference towards Him which dishonors and demeans His holy name. Let us never forget, brothers and sisters, God's call upon us to be holy even as He is holy. And let us strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives in this world that reflect the beauty and majesty of God, the image of Jesus Christ which is being restored in us. Well, King Belshazzar has forgotten his own mortality. He's forgotten about God's holiness. Now, thirdly, we discover in verses 7 to 16, he has also forgotten about God's appointed messenger, the prophet named Daniel, who was once a fixture in the old king's court. With the death of King Nebuchadnezzar some 30 years earlier, the transition of power to King Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar, it is quite possible that Daniel and the old advisors of Babylon were put out to pasture and were replaced by younger men who were more in line with the new king's way of thinking. We also know that Daniel was getting up in years by this time. He was probably retired from active duty in the king's palace, a godly man who had served very well and was now entering the twilight years of of life. For whatever reason, the text suggests strongly, Daniel is now on the margins. Daniel has been largely forgotten by this king. He is largely hidden away from public life in Babylon. And instead of calling on Daniel's assistance, Belshazzar follows that same old pattern we've seen before. Summoning the astrologers and the magicians and the enchanters of Babylon to consult their false gods and to tell them what the writing meant. Now in previous chapters, we've already seen the abysmal track record of these so-called wise men. And here again in chapter 5, it's the same old story. The king calls them to interpret the writing, and once again, they fail miserably. Now in the old days, King Nebuchadnezzar would have done something at this point. He would have called called Daniel to reveal the truth from God. But now in the absence of the old king, an unidentified queen steps forward to remind Belshazzar about this wise old man who had done so much good. first glance, we might assume that this queen is the wife of Belshazzar, but given her familiarity with Daniel and the fact that all of the queens and the, and the concubines had already been gathered together at the party and this woman is just showing up, it is far more likely that this is the queen mother. Or perhaps even the wife of the late Nebuchadnezzar, a woman who had come to know Daniel many years earlier and had seen his wisdom firsthand. This queen had seen the power of God displayed through Daniel, and it's quite interesting to observe some of the things she says about him. Notice, first of all, that this queen calls Daniel by his old Hebrew name and not by his Babylonian name. An indication that after all of these years, Daniel has not forgotten his true identity. This is 70 years in captivity and he still remembers who he is. He is one of God's covenant people and that has not changed even though he has lived the vast majority of his life outside of the promised land. Notice also here that the queen identifies him as one in whom the spirit of God dwells, or depending on the translation of the Hebrew there, perhaps the spirit of the gods, something that makes him unique and sets him apart from all of the other wise men. In the halls of political power, Daniel has been largely forgotten, but he has not been completely forgotten, or at least not by this queen. While well, desperate at this point, sensing he has nothing left to lose, King Belshazzar follows the advice of his mother and he sends a messenger to go get Daniel out of bed and to bring him to the banquet. The queen has already spoken about Daniel in glowing terms, but once he actually arrives and is standing before the guests, the words of the king are demeaning, insulting, as he tries to put Daniel in his place. The king greets Daniel with a stinging reminder that he really that he really is just a foreigner. He's really just a common slave in Babylon. And then he summarizes what he's heard about Daniel in a very skeptical tone. It certainly seems that Belshazzar is not optimistic that Daniel's going to do any better than the other advisors, but nevertheless, he gives him a chance to interpret the writing and he offers Daniel the same reward. Imagine at this late stage of his life, Daniel probably thought that his best days were behind him. But now it's clear that God still has work for him to do. And I hope that's an encouragement this morning for all of our seniors here at Rosedale, that some of Daniel's most effective years of ministry happened when he was in his well into his 80s. It's an indication that God will continue to use us and to bless us until he calls us home. Throughout the course of his long and successful reign, Nebuchadnezzar had come to see Daniel as an invaluable asset. He was a man he could always depend on to tell the truth, even if the truth was not easy to hear and to receive. This new king, by contrast, has all but forgotten about Daniel. He's instead surrounded himself with a group of advisors who will tell him exactly what he wants to hear and not what he needs to hear. And that's an important reminder for all of us, I think. Not to forget the messengers and teachers that God has raised up for His own glory and for the good of His people. Teachers and leaders like Daniel who are far more concerned with God's truth than they are with the approval of men. In 2 Timothy 4 Paul warns us the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know something friends it only takes one generation for the truth of God's word to be forgotten. Only one generation for the truth of God to be suppressed and this is precisely what is happening in this chapter. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar gives this remarkable and public expression of repentance and faith, but by the time we reach chapter 5, a few verses later, all traces of righteousness are gone. They vanished. Belshazzar is willingly suppressing God's revelation. He is pushing God's true ambassadors off into the sidelines. Well, Belshazzar forgot his own mortality forgot God's holiness he forgot God's messenger fourthly and finally we learn in verses 17 to 31 that he also forgot about God's past activity in history the writing is now on the wall the true prophet of God is now standing in the room and the entire room of a thousand people are now eagerly waiting what's going to happen to happen next Before Daniel interprets those foreboding words on the wall, he gives Belshazzar a much-needed lesson in history and reminds him about the dramatic conversion of his father, the king. By the way, when Daniel and the queen speak in these verses about Nebuchadnezzar being the king's father, they are not speaking on a biological level, they're speaking on a political level. In this context, in this culture, the language of father and son is not describing here blood relationships, it's describing political relationships. In other words, the king's successor and the king's predecessor. The Language aside here, Daniel makes it clear in verse 17, he doesn't care about the king's gifts. Daniel is not motivated by any ambition for power or for wealth or advancement in the world. Daniel knows who he is. He's a servant of the Most High God and Daniel will speak God's truth regardless of the personal cost and regardless of the potential reward. Daniel makes it crystal clear he is not for sale. He's not interested in bribes. And from that starting point, he launches into a history lesson about Nebuchadnezzar, reminding Belshazzar of truth that he already knew very well. In this courageous history lesson, Daniel reminds him of the greatness that was given to Nebuchadnezzar by God, a powerful ruler before whom all peoples, nations, and languages trembled in fear. The peak of his power and authority, Nebuchadnezzar was proud. He was a brutal man. But in verse 20, the prophet goes on to speak of his humiliation. Those seven unforgettable years when Nebuchadnezzar lost his sanity and acted like an animal. God brought him down from his kingly throne. God took his glory away for a time, humbling the king by force because he would not humble himself. Daniel speaks here of Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. He then goes on to remind Belshazzar of what the outcome had been. That Nebuchadnezzar had ultimately submitted himself to the Most High God and had therefore been saved from total destruction. You know, none of this was news to King Belshazzar. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. He had probably read the letter that Nebuchadnezzar had written in honor of Daniel's God. Regardless of everything that has happened in the past, Belshazzar has not learned a single thing. This man is intent on going his own way and doing his own thing. Daniel puts in verse 22, now speaking in a definite tone of rebuke, and you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew this. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You know, Belshazzar had every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to learn from the sins of his father, the king. But instead of turning away from those sins and embracing the most high God, he decided instead to blaspheme God in the most brazen and appalling way. Well, the history lecture is now over. The time has finally come for Daniel to give the interpretation of the mysterious writing, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Simply put, this was a message of divine judgment against the king and his kingdom. Namely, that Belshazzar's days were numbered. That he had been weighed in God's scales and had been found wanting. And that his kingdom was about to be divided and taken away from him. And as we learn later, later down the page in verse 30, God's justice came swiftly as the city walls were breached on that very night. As Belshazzar was killed on that very night and as the empire changed hands from the Babylonians to the Persians and Medes. Although Belshazzar knew the truth about God's past activity in history, he intentionally suppressed the truth in his own unrighteousness, just as men and women in our own day continue to forget God and to willfully suppress his truth. It's for that reason the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that all men and women are without excuse before a holy God because, and I quote, because what can be known of God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You no, know, brothers and sisters, it's been said before and quite rightly, I think, those who forget history are doomed to repeat history. That's what happened here to King Belshazzar. Instead of learning from the example of of his predecessor, this king ran full speed into the same old web of pride and eventually he paid the full price for his sin. It's a lesson for you and for me not to forget about the past, but to reflect on history and to learn its lessons. You know, there's a great deal that we can all learn from studying secular history, but far more important than that are the lessons we learn from biblical history, including this inspired chapter we're studying today. Because none of these stories in the Bible were put there for no reason. They were intentionally put in the Bible by the Holy Spirit for our instruction that we might learn about the one true God and his dealings with men and women just like us. And if we want to avoid repeating the same old sins of our forebears, the best place to start is the Word of God, becoming intimately familiar with biblical history that we might be instructed in God's perfect ways and that we might be exposed to God's unchanging truth. There are many important lessons we can take away from this chapter in God's Word. One of the main ones is this. We dare not remain contentedly in our sins, presuming on the grace of God and assuming that we have lots of time in which to repent. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I don't know how much time we've got. We have no guarantees on how long or how short our lives here on earth will be. That is why the emphasis in the Bible is always on today. Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Never presume, friends, that you can do tomorrow what God is prompting you to do today because you might not have tomorrow. By placing these chapters side by side, by inviting us, the readers, to compare them, we see the stories of two very corrupt and wicked men, neither one of them deserving of God's kindness and grace. And this contrast between Nebuchadnezzar's uh, repentance and Belshazzar's hardness of heart illustrate for us the mystery of God's sovereignty and salvation. These two men in their two different responses illustrate the sobering truth of Romans chapter 9 where the Lord God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. When Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and saved after many, many years of brutality and idolatry, Nebuchadnezzar had only one person to thank, and that person was God. And on the flip side, when the message of judgment was pronounced to Belshazzar, he had only one person to blame, and that person was Belshazzar. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility are here on full display in these two chapters and once again we must hold both of these biblical truths together without minimizing or neglecting either one. You know what's tempting I think to look at at two men like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and to think in our own self-righteousness and pride that these guys are in a league of their own. That these guys are far more deserving of God's judgment than we are. Reality, nothing could be further from the truth. The writing was on the wall that fateful night when God decreed judgment on Babylon. But in the Bible, we read about a different time when God wrote a message to the human race with his own finger. And that was when he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Two times in the word of God when God wrote something with his own finger. One in the book of Exodus, once in the book of Daniel. And just as the message written to Belshazzar was a word of condemnation, so the law of Moses points its condemning finger in our direction, reminding us that we cannot possibly keep the law of God through our own strength and self-effort. We too, like King Belshazzar, have been weighed in the scale of God's justice and we have been found wanting. And in the light of God's law, in the light of God's demand for perfect obedience, the writing is on the wall for us today. It's on the wall for me. It's on the wall for you. That's the bad news of the Bible. God's handwritten ordinances condemn us and they show us our own total inability to please God. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ came into this world in order to fulfill God's law in every way. He came to do what Colossians 2.14 says. And I was so encouraged by this verse this week. Colossians 2.14 says that Jesus came out, came to blot out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, to take it out of the way and to nail it to the cross. Isn't that a wonderful verse? If we follow the lead of Delshazzar, if we persist in our stubborn, unrepentant sin, the judgment of God will surely fall upon us one day and perhaps sooner than we we think. But if we humbly submit to Jesus Christ, if we put ourselves under His loving and sovereign authority, we will realize that God's judgment has already fallen. Not on us, but on Him. Jesus died on the cross long ago so that the handwriting of ordinances would be taken away, nailed to the cross, accomplishing through His death on the cross what you and I could never accomplish on our own. And so this morning, in the light of this part of God's Word, I would urge you to heed the warning. Pay attention to the urgency of God's Word which still says to us, today, today, you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts.